Tonight, I want to talk to you about holiness. Now, holiness uh, combined with Leviticus might sound sort of scary. Um, Holiness isn't necessarily a common conversation topic in the church these days. And and some of you might um, think about holiness, what what somebody said about the Puritans once, that uh, Puritans were those who had a sneaking suspicion that someone somewhere was having fun. And holiness might evoke those sorts of thoughts for you. It might be a killjoy concept. But nevertheless, tonight, I want to talk to you about holiness. So far, as we've looked at Leviticus, I've talked mostly about rituals, about offerings, the part of priests, cleanness and uncleanness, the Day of Atonement. In all of this, we've been seeing something about what it takes to be made right with God. We need offerings, we need sacrifices, we need mediation, we needed to be clean. The people of God needed to be clean. And so far, I've used a variety of illustrations to uh, communicate something about the book's overall structure. I talked about Leviticus as being like climbing a ladder and that each sermon taking us up another rung step by step. I've also spoken about it as being like ascending a mountain, ever leading us further up and further in to worship and fellowship with God. And I've spoken about it as being an act of high drama, telling us the great story and inviting us to participate. All of these different illustrations and metaphors were to to help us understand something about what the the author Moses was trying to do as he he built out his book, as he he structured his argument. you see, if we recall all the way back in the first week when, I, when we first started this kind of mad adventure together in Leviticus, I, I spoke of Leviticus as being a chiasm. Um, chiasm is this, this rhetorical structure that basically um, builds up to a main point and then reverses back down in the opposite order. And so we started some months ago uh, looking at the purity, the priests, people, and eventually the Day of Atonement. Well, tonight we come to a second section in the book. We're we're descending back down the mountain, if you will. We've had fellowship with the Lord. The Day of Atonement was this this climactic event in the life of Israel. speaks of a, a climactic life in the life of Christians at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we ask, so what? And so now we go back down the mountain. Thus far, like I said, we've covered the the ascent, the first half of the book. Um, And in a somewhat simplistic way, if you you need a broad structure for Leviticus, what you can think of is chapters 1 through 15 are like justification. They're being made right with God. And the chapter 16 is this worshipful, holy, delightful communion of being made right with God. And then the rest of the book now is something like sanctification. It's the, the... common trope of uh, indicative and imperative, this working out of the salvation that we have received. And so we ask, so what? And tonight, I want to talk to you about holiness. Chapter 17, part of what we heard in our scripture reading, helps us make this transition. Like chapters 1 through 16, it's concerned with ritual. 
Um, as we, we heard, it's concerned about how to make the sacrifices, how to make the offerings, this concern for blood and not eating blood. It has the similar concerns with chapters 1 through 16. But like chapters, 17, or like chapters 18 through 20, like the rest of the book, it also has a concern for issues not relating immediately to the tabernacle. It has issues relating to outside the, the immediate focus of worship for Israel. And so we see things like what they do with sacrifices in the open fields. We see laws for hunting, right? This is the people wandering in the wilderness, and so there's people going out and hunting. And what chapter 17 helps us do is it helps us to make the connection between Israel's worship and Israel's witness. What happens at the tabernacle carries meaning for what happens outside the tabernacle. The service of Aaron and the priests in the tabernacle is meaningless if the nation itself is not a nation of priests. That's what they were created for. That's why the Lord brought them out of Egypt. And so Exodus 19.5, remember this was right before the Ten Commandments are given. And the Lord says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to Israel. And so we see that Israel's worship, the first half of the book, is intimately connected to her witness. Holiness was what Israel as a nation was created for. Holiness is what the people of God were created for. And so tonight, I want to talk to you about holiness. But first, what is holiness? What, what do we mean by holiness? Holiness at its core um, is has something to do with separation. Both of the Hebrew and the Greek words um, behind this word have something to do with separation. But we can often think of separation as defining um, ourselves, defining something against other things. So we can think of holiness as um, what we don't do, what we don't say, what we don't watch, what we don't eat, what we don't drink. It's, it's, this neg- it's just purely a negative concept or a negation. And that's true to some extent. We'll see as we go later on that, that Israel's holiness is expressed by what they don't do, that they're not like the nations around them. But holiness and, and separation um, isn't just about negation. It's more than that. And so in the beginning, right, in Genesis, we see God separating things. They're, they are separated, they are sanctified, they are put to, to a certain point. And so the Lord separates light from darkness, day from night, waters from waters, land from sea. And in the beginning, Adam and Eve were holy. They were set apart. Partially in a negative way, their holiness did depend on what they didn't do, right? They they weren't supposed to eat of the fruit. But on a daily basis, their holiness was more about what they did, who they were. They were created in the image of God, man and woman, separate from the animals, They were holy in their working and keeping of the ground. They were holy in their pursuit of being fruitful and multiplying to the glory of God. And so when we talk about holiness, we we talk about separation. It is something about what we don't do, what we avoid. But it's also what we're set aside for, who we're set aside to. And so Adam and Eve 
Our first parents were created for holiness. And like a new corporate Adam, Israel and the people of God were created to be holy. And we see that right off in the beginning of chapter 18. Look with me. Chapter 18 opens um, with a bit of a history lesson. And it reads, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules, and if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So we see separation, right? Israel is supposed to be different than Egypt. They're supposed to be different than Canaan. They're they're set aside. They weren't supposed to act like them. And much of the rest of chapter 18 deals with the the details of how they're supposed to be different. It really focuses on two key areas. It it focuses on sexual immorality and idolatry. And so there's a, a vast amount of details that go in there. So Chapter 18, 6 through 16, largely deals with incest. It deals with um, sexual ethics with, between immediate family members. Right? Um, then it goes on and talks about adultery and, and general ethics. It also addresses homosexuality and bestiality. And these are, are practices that were um, common in Egypt and Canaan. This is, this is addressing a world where the, the royal family of Egypt was well known for brothers and sisters marrying each other. It, this isn't like it's addressing a, um, the, the random bizarre occurrences that are one in a million, but it's, it's addressing common practices in Egypt and Canaan. It's a world where the Canaanites and the Ammonites regularly sacrificed children. And, dealing with, and it's dealing with problems that several of the patriarchs dealt with. Right? This is not foreign to the people of God even. And so Ham uncovers his father Noah's nakedness. Jacob took Rachel as a rival to her sister Leah. And we could come up with many more. And the nature of these commands might seem like they're far off to us. They might seem sort of distant. Um, we make jokes about that, you know, every state has some sort of joke about the, the nearby state being the backwards one that cousins marry each other, sisters marry each other. So I'm from Missouri. Arkansas is the place where cousins marry one another, so on and so forth. We, it's a, a common joke and trope. And where we might find application, where we might see connection is we, we're familiar with um, the prominence of homosexuality in our day. We're familiar with that, and we, we see that as being something that our culture is, is constantly talking about. But lest we be uh, blinded, incestuous relationships, bestiality, the, the furry movement, uh, our culture is broken and sexually confused. And so Leviticus wants us, gives us a platform to think about holiness. And when we see the problems of our world, when we see these things, we should respond by pressing more and more into a Christian sexual ethic. We should, we should think of the Christian sexual ethic as something of a gospel issue. And by that, I don't necessarily mean something that's it's centered to the gospel, that if you get this right, then... You're saved. No, no, no. I mean something as in it's an issue of good news to the world around us. The Christian sexual ethic is a good news to broken people. 
And we see that in Leviticus. It's something that, that mankind and humanity was created for. It's not just about what we don't do. It's about what we do, why we do it, and the meaning that's there. And so we need to recover something of a classical understanding of Christian sexual ethics, right? There's this understanding that we need to press back into what the Reformed knew well, that, that sex is not just for joy, for, for our own satisfaction. It's for procreation, for joy in the fellowship of marriage, for the management of the flesh. It's something that is good and is a gift from the Lord. And the chapter ends in a way, 18 goes through all of these details and ends in a way that supports this that reminds us that we were created for holiness. And it ties into creation itself. Look with me at chapter 18, verses 26 to 28. It reads, But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of the abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation's that was before you, right? And so interesting things that the land is personified. The land becomes unclean. The land vomits the people out. And we're familiar maybe with Romans 8, that creation groans for the redemption of mankind. But this is a thread throughout scripture. We see this here in Leviticus. It comes up again in Hosea, that creation itself is tied up with redemption, And so holiness is something that's natural. It's in step with creation because it's what we were created for. And so tonight I want to talk to you about holiness. Holiness not as something that is just negation that we avoid, but something that you were created for, that you find wholeness in. I also want to talk to you about holiness because it's something that we were commanded to pursue. Moving to chapter 19, 19, 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Now with chapter 19, we see uh, sort of a, a slight shift. In chapter 18, the main concern was what Israel not be like the nations around them. And so it's, it's comparing all of these things. But with chapter 19, the main concern is that Israel would be like her God, right? So not like the nations around them, but like their God. And as the chapter proceeds, it lays out these commands, giving clear and positive articulation to Israel's way of life. The structure of the passage is, is modeled off of the Decalogue or the, the Ten Commandments. Um, and so you can see each of the Ten Commandments plays a role in this passage. The only one that's omitted uh, is the first commandment, and yet it's presumed everywhere. But the structure is slightly different. Instead of progressing like the Ten Commandments with the two tables, dealing first with the Lord and then with relationships and and, uh, the community, this here uh, begins primarily with our closest relationships and moves outwards. Something where we can see that the holiness that we pursue, the holiness we're commanded to pursue, begins in the home. And so it starts uh, with family. And we see commands to honor our father and mother and to be careful about public worship. It addresses the Sabbath, idols in the home and peace offerings. And then it moves to immediate relationships and kinships. We see a care for the sojourner, a care for the downtrodden and the weak. 
We see curses for false dealings and oppression and wages. And we see that the way that holiness is applied in the community and in the country, the people are not to curse the deaf or put stumbling blocks before the blind. They are not to judge falsely. But holiness doesn't just have to do with our relationships and with individual interactions. Holiness also includes the labor. Again, creation is involved. We are created for holiness and creation is in step with holiness. And so we see in 1923 to 25, there's these weird laws about a tree, right? Where um, Israel, when Israel comes into the land and they plant trees, they need to wait three years. And then on the fourth year, the trees are dedicated to the Lord, and then the fifth year that they can eat them. There's, there's a consecration and a holiness about the trees. Now, what does that matter? We see that holiness has to do with all of life. And so everything is consecrated to the Lord. Everything goes back to the Lord. It's a separation from Israel that they'll consecrate even their things, that, that the nation will be consecrated by what they consecrate. And it's an act of worship. And we see here a key principle for the pursuit of holiness, right? So it's it's something we're created for, and it's something that we're commanded to pursue. And the kind of holiness that we're created for, the kind of holiness that we are commanded to pursue, is holistic holiness. It expands every strata of the social sphere and engages every aspect of life. Hypocrisy will still come, right? We're we're human. We're sinners. That's a given in the Christian life and isn't a a trope that we should... um, Right? People will say, oh, Christians are such hypocrites. It's like, of course we are. We're sinners. That's part of the gospel. But that, that isn't a jab at Christianity. But nevertheless, a growth in holiness should be evidenced with a growing care and consistency in our interactions. It's not, instead of just being some ethereal, abstract concept, holiness is tangible, experiential, relational. Holiness becomes manifest in the relationships characterized by integrity and honesty, faithfulness and love. And so, let me illustrate it this way. Um, Harper leaves to kill a mockingbird. Um, The character of Atticus Finch, he's one of the main characters. And Atticus is a lawyer. Throughout the novel, he's caught up in this this controversial trial that's extremely um, tense. And at the core of it, he is called up, he's tasked with representing a black man who has been charged or accused of rape, Tom Robinson. And it's not that he's simply representing an African-American. Rather, he's asked to do it. He's tasked to do it. Um, The problem, the scandal, as one man points out in the book, is that Atticus aims to defend him. That's what I don't like about it. he, He aims to win. And so Atticus is going into this. He's been tasked with something that he knows is going to be controversial, that he knows is going to be cause problems for his family. And he's going into it not just to do his duty, but to, to win, to, to seek justice. Atticus wasn't partial to the poor, deferential to the great, but he judged his neighbor in righteousness. Atticus was a good man, a man of principles, and the, the people knew it. And so there, there's a phrase where Miss Maudie, a, a kind and wise neighbor, is explaining this to his children. And she tells them that by asking the town tasking him to defend Tom Robinson. She says, whether Makem knows it or not, we're paying the highest tribute we can pay a man. We trust him to do right. And it's that simple. Atticus Finch was a man who was pursuing holiness in the home, 
and in the workplace. In a way that's described elsewhere as Atticus Finch is the same in the house as he is on the public streets. The essence of holiness and the summary of the chapter is then found in verse 18. Chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Right? Now, there's some of you that have probably heard this. This is, you know, the, the great gospel message, and you're like, wait a minute. That's from Leviticus? Yes. Leviticus is concerned about holiness. It's concerned about the communion with the God's people, and it's concerned with the right response. It's what we're commanded to do, to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Holiness is what we were created for. Holiness is what we're commanded to pursue. But finally, when we turn to chapter 20, we see that a lack of holiness, a failure to pursue what we were commanded to pursue, a failure to live out what we were created for, has consequences. And so chapter 20 is is a repetition, a rehearsal of chapter 18 in many ways. It has the similar focus on sexual ethics and idolatry and includes many of the same details. But the main difference in chapter 20 lies in punishments for failings. There's a a distinction that, that scholars will uh, distinguish between between apodictic law and casuistic law. Basically, um, apodictic, these divine commands without rationale, reason, or punishments, whereas now we're getting into these, these casuistic conditional laws where there's punishments. In chapter 20, we see that there are consequences for failing to be holy. Punishments that tell us of the severity of holiness, and the immediacy, and the pressing nature And so tonight, I need to talk to you about holiness. I need to talk to you about holiness because holiness is a matter of life and death for the people of God. We are called to holiness. We are called to live out, to be a a nation of priests, a people of priests to the world around us. And our worship means nothing if we are not pursuing holiness, if we are not witnessing in our lives and our words and our deeds to the people around us. Tonight I need to talk to you about holiness. And in the chapter we, we see the, the severity of it. There's, there's three main forms of punishment that come up. We see that the chief punishment, that the severity of it is that there is death. And so in cases of adultery and bestiality, and many more. The people are called to stone the offenders. We see that there's also other degrees, that that in lesser extremes, people are called to be cut off from the people. That is, that they're called to be kicked out of the people of God. And yet again, there's others where their generations will cease. Basically, they will stop having progeny, they'll stop having kids, and their reputation of generations will cease. And... One scholar helpfully pulls out that there's five principles or applications that we can pull from the type of punishments in this chapter that are then fleshed out in the rest of the Pentateuch. We see first that the, punish, the penalty must correspond with the crime, right? So there are these different levels that correspond to different degrees of sin. It's not just a one-size-fits-all. We also see that punishment is designed to purge evil from the midst of the people, 
It's designed that the, the holy people has to stay holy. And so it, the punishments remove people in cases that fit crime. It also deters others from committing the offense, right? Somebody watching on and seeing severe punishment will think twice about doing it themselves. Punishment also allows the offenders to make atonement, to be reconciled with society, and to make a recompense to the injured party. So there's, there's um, concerns of punishment for the, the vertical as well as the horizontal, to make recompense. And luckily, the church is, does not call for stoning anymore. This is not something that we apply to today, but rather that we can, we can take principles of the, the severity of sins, the, the horizontal effect that our sins have on other believers in the community is something that we need to be concerned about, that we need to be pursuing holiness. And at times, we need to submit to and appreciate punishments. Now, punishments might... Um, sound a bit far off to us. I mean, maybe a better way to think of it is discipline, the discipline of the Lord. And so we can read the book of Proverbs, for example, and see that the wise man delights in the discipline of the Lord. It's an instructive element to him. And we as a church exercise discipline. Discipline's a good thing, right? It's something that we, the, the wise man rejoices in, the Christian rejoices in. And it's an instructive tool. It's something that teaches the individual and the community about holiness. For us, we can talk about discipline serving a variety of purposes, right? First and foremost, it is for the glory of God that when we sin, when we persist in sin, we defame his glory. It's also for the purity of the church that, like we see in Leviticus, that our sins affect those around us, infect the communing body of believers. And so discipline is for the purity of the church. It's also for the witness to the world that when we sin, when we consistently fail to pursue holiness, when we consistently fall into sin, the world is watching and our witness is defamed. And finally, we practice discipline for the, the reconciliation of the sinner. We keep them from falling away. These are ways that the church helps us, that the church teaches us in discipline. It does it because failure to pursue holiness is dangerous. It hardens our hearts. The more that we continue in sin, the more that we persist in sin, we harden our hearts to the Holy Spirit. We fall away. There's a danger of us being like the the seeds that, that fall into the ground and sprout up and then die. Discipline is something that's good for us, good for the community, good for God. Tonight, I wanted to talk to you about holiness. I wanted to talk to you about holiness because it's what you were created for. It's good. You walk in step with creation. And tonight, I wanted to talk to you about holiness because it was something we were commanded to do and in obedience, we can glorify God. But tonight I needed to talk to you about holiness because it is a pressing life or death matter for the believer. And I needed to talk to you about holiness because we need to do more than just talk about it. In our homes and on the public streets, we need to be people who pursue holiness, who pursue a life lived before God to his glory.
And praise God that we have the Holy Spirit to do and to help us, right? All of this is a response to God. It's an opportunity to live in step with what we were created for, an opportunity to obey God, an opportunity to, with our lives and our words, to make worshipful song to our God. And he does it by the work of the Spirit in us. So let us pray that the Spirit would help us. Heavenly Father, we are abundantly aware of our failures in holiness, our failures to pursue holiness, our failures to walk in step with creation. But we rejoice that in Christ you have renewed us. You have given us a new nature and that by, our, by your spirit we are sealed in that and that he works in us to will and to do. Lord, holiness might seem hard, but we need to pursue it. We need to not harden our hearts against the spirit. And so Lord, keep us from that tonight. Lord, help us to delight in discipline and instruction that we might grow in holiness and grow in the consistency and conformity of our lives to your word and to your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.